0: Episode 45 of Glass of Joe podcast. PJ Glasser here with Joe Malfut. It's the middle of April, which means the Masters just ended, and we are happy to bring back our good friend Steve Sands for the second time to talk about Matsuyama's huge win at Augusta, what it means for the game of golf, and a whole lot more. That interview coming up.
1: For the second time in the Glass of Joe podcast, it's NBC and Golf Channel. Steve Sands. Steve, I know you're probably feeling good coming from a week at Augusta. How's everything going?
2: Everything's great, fellas. How about you guys?
1: Doing good. All doing well here. I can't believe it's been eight months since we last did this. I was trying to look back through, uh, and, and I remember it was before all of last year's majors started taking place when golf was coming back in August. That was when it was, and I can't believe it's been eight months and. Here we are. Matsuyama just won the a, Masters, and must have it been a
2: we, lousy show. You guys didn't want me back. <laughs> okay.
0: right. We absolutely did, but we wanted to save you for a major. And we talked about. I actually went back to listen to last uh, when we had you on first, and all the stuff you were talking about. And we talked about this great stretch of golf, and now we're really starting to get into the thick of it with all the majors. Absolutely. So, yeah, and, it's, and it started at Augusta with Hideki. So, what were what were your thoughts on on him winning that?
2: Oh, it's great. It was great for Japan, um, great for Asian golf, um, but more specifically great for him. He's a wonderful kid. Um, he has more pressure on him than people can possibly fathom. Um, the following he has in Japan is unlike anything else. The media entourage that follows him everywhere he goes every day is exponentially larger than, say, Tiger Woods. Um, it's, it's rock star status for him over there. And uh, for him to become the first Japanese male to win a major championship, guys, uh, not only meant a lot to the country, uh, but it meant the world to him. And uh, I'm happy for him. He's a a nice guy, a very deserving champion. um, And it was cool to be there.
1: I think people forget how well he's done quietly in his career. I mean, it was a low a.m. way back when at Augusta. He was at one point the number two golfer in the world, uh, but he hadn't won a tournament since 2017. So what clicked for him this week?
2: You know, in 17, he had a, a really tough time on Sunday at the PGA Championship at Quail Hollow, and that just crushed him. You know, he went away for a couple of years. It destroyed his confidence. Um, you know, didn't hurt his game, Uh, I just heard his confidence which seep down into his game Uh, and he's, he's kind of risen from the sports dead a little bit there after that major championship failure, uh, where again, the pressure was just too much. Um, The, the amount of attention he receives is unfathomable. It's, it's incredible. And for him to fail in that regard, in a sports sense, I think really messed him up. So You know, he's a guy, he's 29 years of age. He's won a world golf championship event. He's been on the grand stage. He's played in the president's cup um, multiple times. You know, Hideki's not going anywhere. He just, he just happened to have it all come to be uh, that one week, man, that, that, that delay on Saturday afternoon was so big for him. You know, in team sports, you can take it, you can take a 20, you know, you can take a full, you know. You can uh, have a a pitching coach or a manager visit the mound. Uh, There's a lot of things you can do to kind of slow down uh, in team sports. Can't do that in golf, man. There's no timeouts, except when there's a weather delay. (laughs) And he was playing very well coming into the Masters. His confidence level was high. He played okay the first couple days. He was was doing all right Saturday. And then that delay happened, an hour and 18-minute delay. He came out and birdied six of the next eight holes to close out the third round, to take that four-shot lead. And he was pretty much on cruise control on Sunday, even though it looked like he wobbled home. So, yeah, he's a deserving champion, guys. Big-time deserving champion. Great, great player.
0: He was just in one of those grooves in that third round. It reminded me a lot of Shane Lowry, his round at uh, Port Rush when he was just that Saturday, when he was just in one of those zones. Steve, I was watching the Masters, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Do you think Augusta – is the hardest major to win because it's the masters and all the pressure that comes with it, or in a sense for a first time winner, do you think it's almost the easiest because of the familiarity that these guys face? And especially on Sunday with a lot of those traditional hole locations and knowing how to attack it. Do you think there's, do you think it at times can be the easiest to win?
2: I think it's both. Um, I've asked that of the guys many times. It's a great question. Um, but it goes unanswered because it depends on who you're talking to. You know, it's only this past week, for instance, only 88 guys were at, were in the masters this year. Normally a major is 156. So you would think that it'd be the easiest uh, of the four to win. It's certainly the easiest cut to make top 50 in ties, only 88 invitees in the event. Clearly it's the easiest cut to make, which, by logic would mean it's the easiest of the four to win. However, because they go back to the same place every year, because the guys know the golf course so well, they'll tell you it's the most difficult one to win. (laughs) Because they say, even though it's fewer guys you need to beat, you don't need to beat 155 other guys. You need to beat 87 other guys. And you could probably lop 30 of them off Right away, no offense to the, you know, the Sandy Lyles and the Ian Woosnam yeah. and the Larry Mises, but they're clearly not going to win anymore. Craig Stadlers, those kind of guys. Um, and they're the great champions and they're, and they're celebrated, but they're not going to win again. So it's even less than the 88 players who were in the 2021 Masters who you have to beat uh, compared to 156 and the other majors. The guys will tell you, and I think this is so amazing. So Padre Harrington, uh, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day, three-time major champion, great player great career, uh, and an even better guy uh, to hang around with, go have a beer with. Uh, he's a great guy. And he says, when I was growing up, Seve Ballesteros was my guy. Everybody has a guy, you know, and Seve was my guy. I said, right. He won the Masters twice in 1980 and 1983. And Seve and, and and Padre goes, oh yeah, I loved it. He goes, but when I think of things on the 15th fairway, hitting my second shot at the par five, All I think about is Seve duck hooking it in the water in 1986, which allowed that avenue to open up for Jack Nicklaus to go on to win and become the oldest master's champion at 46 years of age in 1986. I'm like, wait a second. Your guy won it twice, but you only think of the ghosts. He goes, yeah, that's Augusta. That's the mystique. That's the lore of the place. And because we're so familiar with every shot on every hole, compared to the other three majors, which travel around to different places. We remember the ghosts as much as we remember the greats. And he goes, that's what makes it the most difficult. So it's kind of a double edged sword. Yes. It's the easiest one to win based upon the field size because it's so much shorter than the other majors, but no, it's, it's more difficult and the most difficult because of the mystique and the lore of the place. So it's kind of a double edged sword there.
1: And that goes to the cliche, you don't know what you don't know. And maybe in some cases at the Masters, you know too much. Now, that was thrown around a lot this week for Will Zalatoris. Anybody who's a big fan knows who he is, was not surprised by how well he did. But I think he took the rest of the golf world among casual fans by storm. What impressed you the most about him this week?
2: Oh, man, his ball striking is so strong. Uh, If the putter cooperates, which it did at Augusta, he's going to put himself on leaderboards Uh, for the next 20 to 25 years on the PGA Tour at Wake Forest, and then the Corn Ferry Tour, which is the AAA of golf, and now on the PGA Tour, all the guys will tell you, he strikes a ball as beautifully as anybody in the world of golf. He just needs to have that putter warm-up, which it did at Augusta. Uh, He was outside the top 2,000 in the official world golf ranking in 2018. In 2019, just two years ago, he was outside the top 1,500. Now he's inside the top 25. He's had two major championship starts as a professional. Wingfoot in the fall, where he finished tied for sixth at the U.S. Open. The Masters, he finishes second. So the pedigree is starting to rise a little bit for Will Zalatoris, and I think people are going to get really familiar with him uh, in the next couple of years. That kid can really, really go.
1: And another one who started off great young before he – kind of went away a little bit and is back now is Jordan Spieth, uh, who is back to where I think he was back when he was rattling off those majors Uh, ever since the waste management is when he really seemed to start clicking and top of every leaderboard since then. What's the biggest difference you've seen with him in the last two months versus the last like two years? Is it a confidence thing? Is it a, is it just his ball striking right
0: here?
2: Yeah. Now you need to have the game in order. There's no question about that guys. You've got to have your game intact and you've got to have it sharp and skilled. But right here is where Jordan has made the largest stride um, in the last couple of years. He was real. You think Hideki was in the sports dead after his 2017 major championship failure at Quail Hollow. I use failure in quotations because I think a lot of times in sports, you need to have some bumps in the road before you actually, you know, reach the heights of whatever sport it is. Um, and Jordan, after he won the 2017 open championship at Burkdale, you know, everybody thought, oh man, there's three majors down, down the road and he's winning multiple events a year. Let's get it cranking. That's not how sports works. That's not how golf works as you guys know well. Um, and it took him a while to get it back, but the confidence certainly is higher than it has been in a couple of years. The game is obviously better than it's been in a couple of years, but to me, Jordan is from the collarbones up when he has his creativity and his imagination going with that short game, you know, he, he tends to hit it a little bit sideways every once in a while, but that's okay. Um, he's going to be back uh, in full force, maybe not just yet, but I think he's getting really close to being back to where he was from 15 to 17, and, and 2015 to, to 2017.
1: And to piggyback off of that quickly going back to Matsuyama and now with Spieth, Obviously, we all want full spectators, full media, back to normal. But do you think this last little stretch where Matsuyama, because of the the COVID restrictions, hasn't had quite the paparazzi around him and Spieth, same thing, hasn't had quite that following and and gallery around him, do you think that's helped them? And obviously, we want to get back to normal, but do you think that's actually helped them in this stretch?
2: I think twofold. Um, I think a lot of guys played poorly, most notably Rory McIlroy, Uh, without fans, uh, because they're used to the energy, they're used to the chaos and the commotion, uh, and they feed off of that positive energy uh, that a crowd can provide. I think for Hideki, I think perhaps it's been a nice little respite for him. He's a very easygoing guy, kind of a shy, quiet guy. Um, And again, the entourage of media has not been able to be out in full force the way it normally is with him. Uh, so perhaps that has helped him. That's a great point. Speeth, I think, has played better since fans have come back. You alluded to Scottsdale earlier in the Waste Management Phoenix Open. That was the first event where fans were actually at, P- at a PGA Tour event. He's performed very well since then. So I think Spieth is the kind of guy between his head getting right, his game getting better, and also having the energy of the crowd back. I think Jordan has benefited from having fans back Whereas I think Hideki has benefited from things just kind of chilling out and calming down. The the interesting thing about Hideki is now that he has won, what's going to happen? Now that he's gotten that one, everybody always thinks it opens the door for other things. Jason Day still has one. Justin Thomas still has one. Justin Rose still has one. Freddie Couples only won one. Davis Love III only won one. Justin Leonard only won one. There are a lot of examples. David Duvall only won one. A lot of examples of, wow, is this going to open the door for all kinds of things? I don't know. Perhaps not. Perhaps it will. We'll have to wait and see uh, how how that whole thing unfolds. But the crowd size has helped Spieth and the crowd perhaps has helped Hideki as well, because it's not nearly uh, as suffocating to him.
1: And PJ, about, before you ask the question yeah. you want to ask, I just want to say we're screwed on the trivia question later on. Just hearing you rattle off <laughs> names like this, but we'll get there We'll get there. We when are. We get there.
2: Uh, how about, I was just going to say, how this about- old, This old mind, fellas, has a lot of useless information in it. A lot of useless information, fellas. Steve,
0: that's why I love having you on the pod because I know when trivia time comes, I'm going to meet my match. I got to really find a good one for you because I mean, you're like a mini encyclopedia. for oh, it's
2: <laughs> that, you know what that is that that's just way too much sitting around in a hotel room sipping on a bourbon or a, or a vodka and reading and, and researching so you're prepared for the next day's work that's it it's a <laughs> yes. lot of use. it's a lot of useless garbage in this place. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you're supposed
1: to sell useful to others so there
0: you go <laughs> i was gonna say uh i thought hideki in the augusta airport with the green jacket over ah, exactly. oh, awesome so cool um so cool. But you talk about Hideki and Speed, and Nick Faldo on the broadcast said the next major, the PGA at Kiowa, he said is yeah. a scrambler's paradise. And those two really good with their short game, Patrick Reed, Justin Thomas. Are those the names that you're kind of looking at as the guys that could definitely contend uh, down in Kiowa?
2: Yeah, you know, what's strange is, is that the last time the PGA was at Kiowa. Rory McIlroy was the winner. Blew him away, yeah. You know, blew him away. So can you ball strike your way uh, to that golf course and a title, or can you putt your way and short game your way at that golf course on your way to a title? It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Hideki coming straight back and winning the next one, man, that's a tough spot. Um, I think that, you know, I think Jordan Spieth and his trajectory – is in a great spot. Now, Spieth at the PGA is trying to win the career Grand Slam. Yes, That's been a tough spot for McElroy. Having said that, McElroy goes back to the same place every year and has that august of pressure where there's less oxygen than any other golf course in the world because it's hard to breathe there. <laughs> Kiowa is a different place for Spieth to try to go win the career Grand Slam. So I think that's an advantage. I think Faldo is 100% right. It's a short game kind of prowess, paradise kind of place. Um, And I think Jordan will play well there. Uh, But if you're at a position there, it can get really difficult. So we'll have to wait and see. You know, the last, again, McElroy's a driver of the golf ball. That's how he dominated the field that week. If you're not sharp with your driver, then it's going to be a tough place to score. It also is predicated on the weather and how windy it is. Uh, you know, it's Kiowa Island. So right. it's, it's obviously by the right coast. In the ocean yep. and it's right there. So, yes, you have to have a massively impressive short game to win there. Uh, but you also need to be in the correct position off the tee, because if you're just scrambling for par, you're not going to win the PGA Championship. You're going to need to make some birdies somewhere.
0: Well, somebody that also uses their driver a lot is Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, Another disappointing showing for him. Steve, do you think he's almost too powerful for Augusta? We know long hitters have won at Augusta. DJ just won it last year. Um, But his accuracy really let him down this week. So in future trips, do you think he almost needs to tailor his game towards the course a little more and and kind of tone it down a little bit? Maybe use more three woods and long irons?
2: I am not about to tell Bryson how to go about his business. However, at Augusta, it would seem like to me, uh, I've never put a peg in the ground the week of the Masters at Augusta National Golf Club and tried to win the green jacket. This is not the U.S. Open in Wingfoot. At Wingfoot, he would spray it just a touch because he hits it so far, you're naturally not going to have it You know, right down Broadway. You're not going to hit the ball like Fred Funk right down the middle every time when you're swinging that hard. You're having that type of ball speed and you're going those types of distances. So, if that cone is a little bit out, I feel like a weather guy during a hurricane. (laughs) That cone, if that cone is just a little bit wider at a U.S. Open, the rough at Wingfoot would catch the ball. And then he would dominate the field by hitting nine irons as opposed to six and seven irons onto those greens and putting really well uh, and scoring and, and, and being able to get under par at wing foot at Augusta. If you're, if that cone is still just as wide, would, you know, he hits a lot of balls right down the middle, but some of them are this way. So when they're this way, there is no rough uh, at Augusta. So the second cut page is, 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 is non-existent really, uh, which means those wide ones that stay in the rough at a U.S. Open like Wingfoot are going to bound into the pine straw and the trees at Augusta National. Seems only natural to me that you would have to dial it back, that there's no reason to want to hit it the distances that he's trying to hit it because you don't have to there. Hit it in the fairway. Uh, The fairways are very generous. Hit it in the fairway and, and try to you know, kind of nine or eight iron your way to a, a green jacket, not wedge or gap wedge your way to a green jacket. And, you know, look, he won the NCA title in 2015. He won the U S amateur in 2015, stayed amateur to go play the masters in 2016. He finished tied for 21st. That's his best finish now in six yeah. masters appearances tied for 21st as an amateur. So clearly he's not getting used to the golf course anymore. Clearly he's not getting any more comfortable on the golf course. I think he needs to take a different strategy and not try to overpower Augusta National. There's no reason to try to overpower Augusta National, not in his regard. He hits it far enough with a three wood at a regular swing speed. Why hit the driver there and, and try to be 345? Why not be 315 You know, down the middle or somewhere in the in the short grass? That, that's just my opinion.
1: Yeah, and it's a good one. And now this year, we also have the Olympics kind of wedged in there as well. Um, wow. Where do you think that kind of sits on the list of priorities for some of these guys? It's probably different for everybody. And I'm sure for Hideki with it being in Tokyo, like it's higher on his priority list than maybe it is for uh, say Webb Simpson. I don't I'm just throw that out as a hypothetical. Um, do they look at it as almost kind of a major, like, Hey, let's go get a gold medal. Or do some guys not really treat it with that kind of
2: reverence. It's it's a lot more reverence now uh, than it was in 2016. I don't think anybody realized uh, how successful it was going to be people were wondering what's it going to be like uh, in Rio and it ended up being fabulous now Thursday Friday Saturday were kind of strange on the men's side there weren't a lot of people out there but then when you put in now Rio is not uh, uh, Brazil is not a, a golf loving nation Japan puts golf on a pedestal with baseball and sumo wrestling as the three biggest sports there it's massive there so and Hideki is so big there golf makes the daily news there with scores so with the olympics being in tokyo um and the success of 2016 in rio the guys have now prioritized the olympics a little bit more um than perhaps they did in 2014 and 2015. a lot of guys want to play for the usa want to play for whatever nation they are uh, representing. Uh, and with Hideki, the, the the thought of walking into the opening ceremony with a green jacket or perhaps even lighting the cauldron. He's got
1: to light the cauldron. The yeah, got to.
2: You know, um, he'll be one of the guys in the mix as far as, you know, I mean, he is the biggest star in all of Japan. And that was before uh, Sunday at the Masters. Now imagine how big of a deal he is. I I think the Olympics has been prioritized more um, and I think because of where it is in a golf crazed nation in Japan, I think it's even heightened. So is it a major? Not to the guys. But boy, it's real close. Ask Justin Rose what he thinks about that gold medal uh, compared to that U.S. Open they won at Marion in 2013. He'll tell you it's on equal par, especially outside the United States. The Olympics and gold medals and silvers and bronzes, they, they, they mean more uh, to countries outside the U.S. than they do here in the U.S. They mean a lot here. Uh, They're great. Uh, But for professionals going back to play the Olympics, like in basketball, like uh, we see in tennis, like we see in golf, they're never quite the same as an NBA title or a grand slam event in tennis or a major championship in golf. But boy, they're real, real close.
0: Yeah. Um, Last question before the Swift seven in the trivia. Are you always happier when you arrive at Augusta or more upset when you have to leave?
2: Oh, man, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> now, when we check into the hotel at Augusta, um, when they say, hi, Mr. Sands, nice to see you again. We have you for the next 12 nights. Okay. You kind of gulp and go, it's a long time. Now we do six in a row on NBC before going to Augusta. So Augusta for me every year is seven weeks in a row. And I'd be lying if I didn't say when we leave Augusta, it, it's, it's okay. It's been a great week. It's been a great twelve days. The Augusta National Women's Amateur, the drive, chip, and putt, all the hours on the air, live from. It's an honor to be there, a privilege to do it, and I'm really excited every single year to get there. But I don't mind going home after seven weeks. It's a good yeah. That's that's quite the
0: marathon. Uh, All right, Steve. So seven.
2: But no no complaints. Believe me, you're not here. Yeah, I was gonna say. I don't don't think you're gonna complain about that. Not (laughs) one thing. You're never gonna hear me say anything negative about it. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't say when I get in that car, I think, okay, this is okay, that it's done.
1: You think of it, I mean, this is a, a, the best analogy I could think of, but it's like when you go to Disney as a kid, like you're amped to get there. But then yeah. after five days of the parks, you're just exhausted and you're ready Out, to go
2: home. That's it. 100%. Augusta the, is the best week of the year. It's the coolest tournament to go to every year. Certainly to do what we do for a living. It's a privilege and an honor to be there. Um, but... You know, yeah. You look pretty comfortable at home right now, you know, (laughs)
0: after some time on the road.
2: I'm representing Scott Sands here and Brian Sands here. So, you know, it's nice.
0: Big 10 country at the Sands house. Um, All right, Steve. So, Swift 7 and trivia time. Question number one for you Which round of 65 did you find more impressive? Rose on Thursday or Hideki on Saturday?
2: Is this rapid fire or do you want uh, to go? Rapid
0: fire. Yeah, but yeah.
2: Uh, Justin Rose, due to the field average that day, almost 75, his 65 on Thursday was absolutely spectacular.
0: And he birdied like nine of the last 11, right? It was was, was insane. Uh, Two guys who were in contention this week that are going to break through in a matter of time, Rom or Shoffley, who is more likely to win their first major first? Uh, Shoffley. Okay. Uh, Who was the coolest celebrity that you got to see walking around Augusta this week?
2: Hey, I saw Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's the new quarterback of our football team. He was walking around. I know Trevor Lawrence was there. I know your all-stars are there. When I see the Washington football team quarterback (laughs) walk by, if you're from where I'm from, that's all you need to know. I walked right up to Ryan and said, hey, let's go get him with Rivera and let's defend that NFC East championship this year.
0: Love it. Uh, Which shot do you think players – feel more pressure at on a Sunday? The tee shot at 17 on Sawgrass or 12 at Augusta?
2: 12 at Augusta. Um, It's real close, but 12 at Augusta. The 17th at Sawgrass is the most famous par 3 in the world. 12 at Augusta is the best par 3 in the world. Both of them equal pressure, um, but probably just a little bit more uh, 12 at Augusta.
1: Uh, number five. Now, I don't know how good a golfer you are, but you're around it enough. enough. (laughs) uh, Do you think if you were to pick one of the 18, which hole at Augusta do you think you'd have the best chance to birdie?
2: 13. I think 13 is the greatest hole in the world of any part three, four or five. Um, I've been very lucky uh, to have played it a few times and I have actually carded a four, at 13, I think it's the best golf hole in the world, uh, whether it's for amateurs, the members, um, or watching it the week of the masters every year. I I love 13.
1: All right, there you go, so you've done it. Uh, Number six, favorite Augusta traditional concession item.
2: Wait, wait, say that again?
1: Favorite traditional concession item at Augusta.
2: Oh, egg salad sandwich, man. The egg salad sandwich at Augusta. Val Sands makes a really nice egg salad sandwich. But no offense to her. The eight salad sandwich at Augusta is absolutely spectacular.
1: Number seven, sticking with the food theme here in some alternate universe where, as you just said before, you're not a good golfer. But the alternate universe, Steve Sands, is a master's champion. Set your menu for the following year's dinner.
2: That's absolutely an alternate universe, by the way. <laughs> um, oh, I would have uh, Maryland crab cakes. Mm. I would have... Um, tomato mozzarella salad, I would have uh, raw oysters as an appetizer, and I would also have a filet with the crab cakes for a, state, a surf and turf kind of thing, uh, and then I would have you know type, a type of wedge salad um, as far as a salad. Uh, for vegetables, I would go with potatoes au gratin, and also probably a cream corn. And then for dessert, I would go with a really good key lime pie mm. um, or maybe some type of chocolate caramel cheesecake type of situation, maybe a chocolate mousse.
1: Sign me up. <laughs>
2: yeah. That's you know, probably little... boom, boom. Good appetizers, good. meal, salad, you know, dessert, uh, your beverage of choice, you know, of whatever you want you they know, got by the some way, cool guy. Who, by the way you know the guy who wins the masters and hosts the dinner you know he has to pick up the tab he does it did. How about that? <laughs> he has to buy the dinner so so next year we were joking with a decky about it he's gonna have kobe beef probably um maybe like some sushi that's gonna be a big number you know, and he's
1: got a two point something million dollar purse yeah. from from the Green Jacket. I yeah, think yeah. he'll be all right. I don't think he's going to have to pay for anything the rest of his life in Japan itself. So.
0: Very good point. Very good point. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tiger was saying on Twitter that he always looks forward to that night and running up the tab, and he was hoping to do it to DJ. So. 100%. Very funny. Uh, all right, Steve. So trivia time. I mean, I'll, I'll ask you it anyways, even though you're probably just gonna <laughs> nail it. But it's a lot of pressure, uh, man, it's a lot
2: of pressure. To be here.
0: 90 seconds, three strikes. Uh, your question is: Hideki will try to accomplish something that only five players have done since 2000, and that's win multiple majors in the same year. Can you name who those five golfers are since 2000 that have won multiple majors in the same year?
2: Tiger would be one. Tiger, yep. Um, Let's see. Omira was 98. Uh, Now, are you saying one player? Like Tiger couldn't have done it multiple times.
0: Correct. Yeah, just one player. Just two majors in the same year.
2: So Tiger Tiger obviously won
0: three in one year, but he also won multiple.
2: Uh, McElroy correct Roaring in 2014 yeah with the PGA at Valhalla uh Tiger um oh come on man uh let me go through a three four five and six uh Mickelson
0: no Phil has not done it
2: oh that's right the PGA was a Baltusrol in, in five you're right um 40 seconds left. So you got plenty You guys of time. are going to stomp me, man. This is going to really piss me off. Um, <laughs> my brain my brain is fried here. McElroy, Tiger, um, Spieth. Yep. Masters
0: Spieth. in the open. Ashdod Chambers, Chambers back.
2: Yep. Two more. Um, Thomas hasn't done it. Brooks Kepka did it.
0: Kepka US Open in the PGA. And then you need one more with 15 more. seconds to go. Oh,
1: come on. I'll tell you, you you've mentioned him in
0: the course of the you show have. so far. You have mentioned him. And this was the toughest one. But once you said him, I'm like, oh, he's going to get the question.
2: Padraig Harrington.
0: There you go. 2008 yes. Open Championship yeah, in champion the PGA.
2: At Oakland Hills. Yeah. There you That's go. That's right. Thank God I got that. At show. the buzzer, Steve. Oh, well done. At the horn. <laughs> At well the horn, that was uh, that was Suggs at the horn from Gonzaga. There you go.
0: Oh, how good was? Did you get a chance to watch that game at least? Oh,
2: absolutely, man. That was okay. incredible. I, I have a tradition every year on Monday night uh, where we watch the championship game. On Saturday, it's a little bit back and forth on where we watch it, but Sunday with the, uh, Monday night with the same guys every every year. Saturday, we were watching it uh, from the hotel bar, um, and that was first of all that was as good. Forget the finish. That was as good a basketball game. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's what and we were saying. Leader, whatever, we've seen it a long, long time. High-level ball. I mean, it was high scoring, but it was still good defense, good play, yes. uh, good structure, good coaching, good shooting, good, you know, everything about it uh, was a great game. You know, Suggs made that shot. But, yeah, yo, definitely. We watched the Final Four uh, absolutely every Saturday and Monday night in Augusta
0: the most telling part of that game i thought is gonzaga had virtually beaten every team by double digits and they never held a lead of more than seven points in that game that's how good ucla was at keeping keeping it close
2: listen it doesn't matter whether it's team sports or individual sports like golf which is what we've been talking about for the last 20 or 30 minutes when you challenge the favorite and the favorite hasn't been challenged much the pressure keeps going people always ask. Why are there upsets in the NCAA tournament every year? How does that happen? And then once you get past that first game, most likely in the second game that gets back into order, sometimes you get some really low seeds or high seeds going into that second weekend. But for the most part, those upsets only happen in that first game, maybe the second game. Mm -hmm. It's because when you apply pressure like that, all of a sudden, You know, you get to that 16-minute timeout, the under-12 timeout, the under-8 timeout, and they're looking up at the board going, man, we haven't been in this spot all season. We're up double digits every time we look up at the board. Things get tight. Pressure is the great equalizer in sports. So in golf, Justin Rose, 65 on Thursday. What a wonderful round of golf. Probably the best round of golf that was played by anybody in the field on any day that week. 72 gathers himself on Friday, but he still has the lead. So Saturday morning, he's waking up again as the leader. It's a really difficult thing to do. And I think Gonzaga, well, they got steamrolled by Baylor. But in the UCLA game, the more UCLA pushed him, the more pressure was on Gonzaga. And of course it took a dream shot uh, for them to advance to the final game. But same thing happens in golf. It's hard to sleep on a lead. It's hard to be the guy everybody's facing. That's what makes it what Tiger did so amazing all those years, uh, to be the guy everyone was hunting every single day. And he came up big almost every time. And, you know, it's it's a lot of pressure on these guys uh, to try to finish. Same thing in college basketball with these kids. And uh, Gonzaga couldn't handle it, and Baylor played a perfect game on Monday night. Uh, and they steamrolled Gonzaga, man. I didn't see that coming at all. No, I did and, not that, either. The Joe and I were talking
0: about uh, like just the greatest games that we've ever seen across sports. We threw out the up Boise there. State Oklahoma Fiesta Bowl and sure. the Cubs Indians World Series. And we're like that UCLA Gonzaga game was right up there. I'm how curious. Old you, how old
2: are you guys? We're twenty-four. Yeah, I mean that I mean, I'm fifty two. That could be the best college basketball game you've seen in your lifetime. Oh, absolutely. Easily. For me. Easily. Yeah. You know, the Duke, Kentucky game was before you guys. Yeah. The Duke, Kentucky game was very similar. Incredibly high level of basketball, you know, two amazing coaches, incredible athletes on the floor playing defense, playing offense, you know, everything working, everything clicking, going back and forth, up and down the court, not just entertaining, but just high level basketball. I thought that game the other night, um, was as good a game as, as we've seen in a long, long time. It's got to be the best game in your guys' life.
1: Absolutely. Tonight. Absolutely. 100%. Before we let you go, we see the clock ticking down quick. You mentioned Scottsdale, always your favorite every year. Uh, I forget, <laughs> were you able to get out there? And was it yeah. kind of norm this year? I know that it was at 100% capacity, but was it still its normal atmosphere?
2: First of all, Scottsdale's never normal. Uh, <laughs> so right now, Scottsdale is a, is, a, is a high recommendation for you, two. You need to get out there. Uh, enjoy yourselves in Scottsdale. We, have it this, we had it this year on NBC. Um, we get it every third year. When we don't have the Super Bowl, CBS has it. When CBS has the Super Bowl, we have it on NBC. Of course, Golf Channel is there for the cable covers Thursday and Friday and early Saturday and Sunday at uh, every tour event. So we had it this year. There were fans, people walking around, doing their thing. Uh, not as many fans, not 200,000 people walking around. But Scottsdale is spectacular. And it's a lot of fun. And it was great to be there. It was cool.
0: Steve, I just want to ask you one more thing. Think about UCLA, Gonzaga. Is there a golf, like, is there a duel that you think of the first thing that comes to your head that is just like, cause obviously golf isn't a team sport, but is there a Sunday round between two guys? Like I'm thinking of Phil and Stenson at the open championship or Tiger and Rocco at Torrey Pines. Is there a duel that you remember in golf that maybe is the best that you've seen on a Sunday?
2: The best that I've seen at a non-major, a long time ago at Doral, I would say late 2000s maybe, I forget the year. I wanna say it was like 06, 08, something like that. Tiger and Phil played together in the final round and they went toe to toe and back and forth like the UCLA Mm. uh, Zaga game, like the Duke Kentucky game, like that Indians uh, World Series game you alluded to earlier. Uh, back and forth they didn't like each other at the time Uh, there was a fans were going bananas every second of the day the energy level was incredible we had it on our air it was great Um, that was as good as a good a duel as I've seen I would like to see uh, Dustin and Brooks Mm. healthy same group final round at a major Uh, I'd like to see the two of them kind of muscle each other uh, a little bit, go back and forth and see how it goes. There there are good rivalries in in golf, just like there are in in team sports. Um, And I think watching those two, I remember Rory and Brooks playing in Memphis a couple of years ago, but it really wasn't a back and forth. Rory didn't play great. Brooks kind of got out there and kind of hit a little bit. I'd like to see Brooks and Dustin just power the golf course back and forth, or maybe a DeChambeau and a Dustin does power each other and muscle each other back and forth. You know, a little Ali Frazier, uh, in golf would be a lot of fun.
0: That'd be good. Steve, we got like probably 20, 10, 20 seconds left. So we appreciate you staying <laughs> with us through the horn. Great Sorry, seeing you, know,
2: man. Great seeing I you. I know your time. I apologize. No, hey, the more good. time
0: we see Sands, the better. So we're not going to complain. Great seeing <laughs> you, Steve. Take it easy. All right. We'll do this again sometime soon. It was awesome.
2: You guys are the best, man. Anytime I apologize for not getting together at Augusta, that was completely my fault. No worries. you guys want anything, I'm all yours, man. It's a lot of Go fun. Go All the best to you guys. Go Terps, all right? right Thanks, Dave. Fear to the, to the
0: Once again, that was Steve Sands from the Golf Channel and NBC. Great to have him back on. Hard to believe it was eight months. I was listening That's crazy. back to our podcast with him and, uh, I know, it's crazy. We've almost been uh, coming up on a year. It'll be uh, next month, which is yeah, which is pretty wild to think about. Um, I, I
1: keep thinking about that over and over again. Like, on one hand, this past year has felt like it's taken forever because of COVID and everything. But on the other hand, like, certain things are coming up now where I'm like, that was a year ago? Like, I'm a WWE fan, and WrestleMania was last week. And I'm like, I feel like I was just locked down in my girlfriend's apartment watching it when we first did our like first 14 day quarantine, quarantine after moving back from Florida and she was down here for spring break, which turned into spring entirely, not just spring break. <laughs> um, and like I, like, I just watched that and here it is again. It's like there's now these things are coming back around that the things that typically mark the passing of time every year, yeah. like, you know, it's April and we're at a guy like all that stuff is making it feel like the year went by quickly, even though it's taken forever and it makes no damn sense, but time doesn't make any sense. So.
0: Whatever. <laughs> you know, but it was great having Steve back on. Um, and, you know, it's really just something you don't realize of how big Matsuyama is in his country Absolutely. and the following he gets. So great for him with all that pressure to win the tournament. Um, loved at the end how we were getting into that UCLA-Gonzaga game, Joe. I'm going to be interested to see how many guests we have on now that refer to that game because – It's going to be one of the best that we see of our our lifetime. I mean, already we talked about it last week with Pete and some of those great games. I was glad Steve was sort of able to talk about some memorable golf matchups going back and forth. He was talking about how he loved to see Kepka versus DJ, and we were texting each other and we wanted to see Speed versus Justin Thomas. That's
1: the one. That's the one for me. Before I get into that, I mean, that Gonzaga UCLA game, I didn't mention it last time when we talked about it, but. I was in like a NCAA tournament pool and had Gonzaga won by the 14 and a half point spread, I would have won a nice chunk of money, but totally worth it that the game went the way it did because 30 years from now, I'm not going to remember whatever I would have blown the money on anyway. as like a celebratory thing. I'm going to remember that game forever. So I'm, I'm glad it went the way it did, but Speith and JT, for the rivalry those guys had, kind of entering the fold at the same time, Spieth taking the golf world by storm the way he did, and JT kind of going through that whole, like, hey, you know, what about me? What about me? Look at me. Like, I'm, I'm right there. I'm good, too. And he never got that attention. And then it's flipped since then where JT has been more in the limelight. Hasn't won as many majors as, as Spieth, but JT has gotten more in the limelight. And Spieth, his game has been atrocious for two years. So now that it's back, and it's not like they're old or 27 years old, um, if we could get them Sunday pairing maybe a playoff at a major, that would be incredible. That Look, would be the one I
0: want I, I mean, the PGA Championship, I'm comparing Kiowa Island a lot to the Shinnecock U.S. Open because Kiowa I don't know much about, but – Nick Faldo, Steve Sands, both say it's a short game kind of golf course, and Speed and Thomas have two of the best short games in the game, so they definitely could find themselves towards the leaderboard at the end of May. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we were we were talking about some of those great games last week, and I was thinking about it a little bit more and more. We didn't give a hockey game, but the uh, the Sharks Golden Knights playoff game where oh, yeah. the Sharks scored four goals on that major penalty and then Vegas ties it. It goes to overtime the and the Sharks problem, score.
1: The only problem with that game is it's so tainted because that was such a bad penalty call and you hate the way it decided it like that. But, but yeah, like it was a great game. I think back more to, um, you know, there was the, you know, it wasn't, in the late advanced stages of the playoffs, but you get the five overtimes last year with the with Columbus and Tampa. And, like, this is not even among the greatest hockey games of all time. Just, like, in recent memory, I think back to uh, the Rangers-King Stanley Cup series. In that series alone, you had uh, – Three games go to overtime. One go to double overtime, and each of those games, the Rangers took a lead, and the Kings came back, and then they had like three or four lead changes. Like it was great. So there's there's a lot more. Uh, and you, the thing with hockey, I think that was part of the reason we subconsciously stayed away from it last week. You start getting into the Stanley Cup playoffs. Well, so many games go to overtime. You got, exactly. I'm just gonna say you got so many games on a nightly basis that are going to overtime where it's so difficult to then go through and parse out which ones are the best of the best. And it's not necessarily just, oh, this one went to the most overtime, so it's better. Like, there's so many games there that are just genuinely great games, and it's really tough. But um, that might be an undertaking for a couple weeks from now when the playoffs start, if we have, like, a top five list or so of some of the best ones we've watched. But... Uh, But yeah, hockey is probably the toughest to to kind of handicap. That's good. NBA so many over
0: NBA for me there are two clear cuts. It's uh, Golden State-Cleveland Game Seven with LeBron's block, Kyrie shot, and then Game Six Spurs and Heat with Ray Allen shot. Two, I mean, you talk NBA Finals elimination games where you know both included LeBron James playing Mm -hmm. in, which is which is pretty wild. But uh, the Spurs and the Heat. Final series was the pinnacle of basketball. Each team had four Hall of Famers on their team. You have two Hall of Fame coaches in Spolstra and Popovich. And then, I mean, the level of basketball in that series was ridiculous. And then, Golden State and Cavs, you had Golden State, who's an all time historic team, 73 win team, going up against LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love, who are trying to win a championship for Cleveland. So those two in the NBA, I think, are the clear cuts, and then the ones you are getting into baseball: Indians, Cubs, Cardinals, Rangers, um, the those Dodgers, Astros. I game think
1: those two four. games, those two games, are a tier of their own. I think, though, for the MLB, they are.
0: Yeah. Um. But yeah, the, those were great. But uh, yeah, as as we get into the MLB now, as we talk about those two games, we're early on in the season, Joe, but a lot of people are not liking the rule changes at if, all. Yeah. And, and the one the that's bothering me, though, they're the same things as last year, but it's different because
1: last year, knowing it was a 60 game season, people were more accepting of. Right. I think this year there's just that disconnect between hey, we're playing 162 games. Why are we still doing these couple things that we did last year? So I think that's where the disconnect is.
0: The one that's bothering me the most is is the extra innings. I don't like having the runner on second to start the tenth, maybe the thirteenth, fine. Yeah. But I think tenth, eleventh, maybe even the twelfth inning, you kind of just let it play out regularly. Um, that's bothering me probably the most. But you know, I mean, we we've been getting some exciting baseball. We've had two no hitters. Rodon, uh, I was watching last night, and. I mean, they hit Perez on the foot with one out to go in the ninth inning. Is just, it's brutal. brutal. You get the no hitter, but you were so close to perfection. It's crazy, too, because you're watching this dude pitch for a perfect game in the ninth inning. And it's one of those things that it's almost crazy that there is only, that it's only happened 24, 25 times. You would think, in nine years, which is wild. You'd think it happens more. the
1: longest route, though. It's not the longest drought though. I was looking actually at it earlier today. This is tied for the third longest drought of the live ball era. There was one of 13 and one of 14 years, I believe it was. So there's been some
0: longer. It's like the triple crown in horse racing. You'd think it would happen a lot more, but it just, it doesn't. And last night reminded you how great you can be for 25 outs, but it just takes one pitch to plunk a Mm -hmm. dude or four bad pitches out of the zone. and, And that's it. But take it to have the Padres finally break their streak of no hitters. And then no, White Sox one. had their 20th is, is insane. But, uh, no, it's been, it's been a good start for baseball and, uh, the Dodgers are, it's kind of them and everybody else right now. Yeah, They've lost everything. Two games. It looks
1: every, sad. every everything as far as the standings and the way the game are going. It's, it's pretty much true to form of kind of what we all expected, but the, the big topics are the rule changes. I want to harp on that a little bit. Um, The three batter minimum was instituted before COVID and now it's getting lumped in with everything else because people hate that rule too. And I also don't like that one was put in to speed up the game. This is just going to be us acting like old people today, I guess, but um, that one was put in to speed up the game. And I'd love to see the numbers on it because it's almost kind of had the opposite effect. I feel like at least from games that I've watched, and obviously that's the Mets pretty much every night and whatever happens to be the ESPN game. I feel like there's been a lot of times where a guy has been put in and has struggled so mightily that he ends up being in for longer, taking more time to throw his pitches because he's trying to get out of trouble because of the three batter minimum. And it's just, instead of a guy coming in, who is maybe in for one batter, well now, you can't bring in a choleric for a lefty and then he doesn't get him out. And then it's two righties. And now those righties get hits and it's an even longer inning and there's more runs. And I guess that's part of it. The NLB wants more runs. They want more scoring, but the rule was put in to cut down on the time of the game. And if you have these innings going longer and longer, because guys can't get certain guys out because you bring them in for one and now they end up facing three. That's just, it's not sitting well with me and, uh it, it takes away some of like the, the lefty-righty matchup and stuff, so that one's tough. The the runner on second base, the other night we had a game between the Indians and the White Sox that was 0-0 at the end of nine. And the only run that scored was the Phantom Runner on second base. That's horrible. Yeah. Um I, I'll take it after 13 innings because look, at the end of the day, in a in a 162-game season where right, wrong, or indifferent on a given night. Certain games don't really quite mean as much. You know, the best teams still lose 60 games. I don't need to see teams playing until 230 in the 17th inning, and now you're burning through arms, and you're worried about injuries and costing your bullpen for the next day or two. I don't really need to see that. Um, So, But I don't want to see the runner on second right away. So give it to me. I exactly agree with you. Thirteenth, Give me three extra innings of normalcy. If it's not decided by then, figure out a way to end it. Period. Um, do you know if then, these
0: rules carry on to the playoffs?
1: Like it'll nobody oh, no, knows no, no, yet? they didn't. They didn't do. I mean, last year in the playoffs, they didn't do the runner on second oh, three no, batter no, minimum. No. Uh, but the but the runner on second was not a thing. Yeah. Uh, what was the other one? Oh no, the other the DH one that we about the H. is DH. Yeah, and that that's just something that I mean, I personally like pitchers hitting. I, I yeah, I don't, but I get you why hear, people would. Yeah, I, I don't mind it, um, but they should have agreed to something and not left it to the last moment. And it's just a bad sign for the CBA coming up soon that they couldn't even think of, like, getting to the table and coming to an agreement on the DH, which creates more jobs in the league. Um, uh, it's just not, it doesn't bode well going forward. So those Bob are Manfred's MLB, Joe. They, yeah. they procrastinate yeah. until the very end. And even more than all of that, the biggest issue has been replay. And we've seen that show It's Ugly Head a couple of times where the Mets stole a win because the Conforto leaning into the yes. pitch wasn't technically reviewable. We saw the Phillies-Braves game end with just an he absolute forward call. <laughs> and you had everybody from Mike Trout, who's a quiet guy, tweeting about it, um, to, to Marcus Stroman, who's not a quiet guy <laughs> tweeting about it, uh, Trevor about all these guys. So uh, they got to figure out replay. they got to figure out these rule changes. I'm all for tweaks that make the game better and make the game more consumable to, uh, to the demographics they're trying to reach. But there is still something about preserving the game's integrity and the rules they've put in just, they don't, they don't achieve anything that they're supposed to achieve. I think the extra inning rule, it's just kind of gimmicky and it doesn't, it hasn't seemed to necessarily speed extra innings up because and there's been so many times where both teams get the runner in from second and then you just keep going. And, and the team who's batting in the uh, bottom half of the inning then uh, has an advantage because depending on what the team does in the top half, maybe the team in the bottom half is more likely to go ahead and bunt the guy over to third or something. And, and there's that. So it's just it, a lot of it's just not working for me. And, and something needs to change.
0: I agree. Yeah, the replay, I mean the the Conforto, but the Braves Phillies was really, really bad. I mean, yeah. the dude, I mean that, that cost them a game. You can't cost the Marlins the game too, but the Phillies, I mean, the dude didn't touch home plate. Like you gotta you gotta call that. That was bad. And I love um, what Tim Kirchens take is on it.
1: And hopefully at some point we could have him back on the pot again. Um his take was essentially in a case where it's close it's obviously the umpire's initial gut reaction to make a call. But if it's that close, don't make a call. Because the way the rule is written, that if it's inconclusive, you go with the call on the field. So many times, like we saw in that Phillies-Braves game, the call on the field is wrong. And then just depending on where the cameras are, depending on if there's any bodies in the way, we might not be able to exactly see or maybe there's one angle that gives us a good view, but two angles are inconclusive. And, and that goes back to the whole, if it's inconclusive, you stand with a call in the field. I like Tim Kirshen's idea. Try to ingrain it and teach these umpires. If it's that close and you're not sure, don't make a call. Leave it entirely up to the replay then to, to dictate it. So this way there's no inconclusive play stand.
0: That is a good idea, but yeah, you're going to have to teach them because these umpires obviously are just controlled to say safer out and for them to just do nothing. I don't think that would work right away, but if you instill that in the up and coming umps, that's a, that's a good thought. I've not heard that idea, but that's, that's actually a good way of looking at it. Um, NHL is something we have not talked about much, but they're coming down the home stretch in the regular season. Um, Let's see, the, the four divisions, I mean, the Central, Carolina, and Tampa, we knew they'd be good. Florida's the real surprise. They got off to a hot start, but a lot and of we people we talked thought- about
1: them. We, well, two weeks in, we, we kind of, at the quarter mark of the season, I remember we settled down, we looked at the standings, and we were like, eh, Tampa's going to fade. I mean, um, Florida's going Florida, to fade. Yeah, they haven't faded. Yeah, no. have not
0: faded at all. Dallas has been the real disappointment in that mm-hmm. division. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be those three, in the Nashville and Chicago, it looks like, battling for the last spot. The East, which is the best division in hockey, is turning out to be just that. You have the Caps and the Islanders, who have really been the best two teams all year. Pittsburgh just keeps on winning. They have injuries, but with that culture, with Crosby and Malkin, they're 8-2 in their last 10 games. They're clicking at the right time. And then that last... Spot, Joe. I mean, Boston is one of the better teams in hockey. They were favored, uh, one of the favorites coming into the season. They still got a little bit of a lead over the Rangers and the Flyers, but not by much. I don't know if you know how many more times you face the Bruins, but those could be some big games. So
1: we got two more against the Bruins, and it's the last two games of the season. The thing with the Rangers-Bruins race right now, though – The Bruins have three games against Buffalo, who has been playing better. Uh, They've been playing better. They actually took the Bruins to a shootout last night and lost in the shootout. So I'm not going to dismiss Buffalo anymore the way we were during their, whatever it was, 18-game losing streak. But that's the thing. They have two games in hand on the Rangers, up four points, and those games in hand are against Buffalo. Because when Buffalo had their early season COVID issues, they had a stretch where they played the Bruins a lot and all those games, as you'd imagine, got postponed. So their two games in hand are both against Buffalo. So if we're going to go chalk and assume they beat Buffalo, what you're really looking at is a Rangers team that is actually eight points behind the Bruins. And that's going to be a lot to overcome. I don't think they can do it, but this goes back to, as a Rangers fan, what I was talking about when we had Joe Beninati on last and in the preseason this year for me is a win already. I mean, they have gotten size, you know, four games above five hundred now, comfortably above five hundred. They have gone toe to toe with the Caps and have a winning record against the Caps. They have gone toe to toe with and have uh, they're one game under five hundred against the Islanders. They've gone toe to toe with and are one game under five hundred against Pittsburgh. Uh, same thing with Boston; like they're going up against the best teams in the best division of hockey, and they're holding their own. And the kids have been phenomenal. And their goal difference, goal difference is something that we always go back to as like one of the kind of main things you look at. Bruins are plus six. The Rangers are plus 24. Caps are plus 25. Islanders are plus 27. So it's been a great year for the Rangers and building blocks for next year. So I'm very excited to see where that goes. And then the last division, the last two then to get to are the West and the North, the All-Canada division. Uh same I'm thing. I'm just happy that the Oilers
0: are gonna make the playoffs.
1: Yeah, the top three <laughs> we got the we got Toronto, Winnipeg, Edmonton. Kind of a small battle between Montreal and Calgary, but it's not really because Montreal's got three games in hand and a four-point lead, so they should be fine over Calgary. And then the West, as we knew all season long, it'd be Colorado and Vegas in some order of one and two. And then Minnesota, a bit of a surprise being as comfortably the three that they are. St. Louis is starting to kind of rise to the occasion, and they're a point above Arizona with two games in hand. So the playoff race is starting to take shape, uh, which is now where we look back to where my preseason bets are and how those are looking. So I had, I had uh, Colorado to win the cup, and the form they've been in since Valentine's Day is incredible. And they're 9 and 1 again in their last 10, 39 uh, 4, their record. So feeling decent about that as we head to the playoffs. Then my divisional, I made three divisional bets. Uh, Edmonton's not catching Toronto. They're down eight points. They have a game in hand. Probably not going to happen. My, my other two, I got Carolina, who has a game in hand and has tie on points to win the Central with Tampa Bay. And then I got the Caps, who are two points up on the aisles. So those two are going to come down to the wire. Those two are going to come. How many games time. in the season? Uh, this year they are doing a 56-game season. We got about Yeah, Backstrom, 14, as we record this
0: on uh, Thursday, Backstrom's playing his, in his 1,000th game tonight. So, big deal. I can't believe, I mean, uh, him and Ovi I've been spoiled with for uh, oh, absolutely. 15 years, so it's pretty cool that he's that playing this. With,
1: with the trade deadline passing, that was the biggest splash of the deadline when the Caps going out to get Anthony Manta and what they traded for him, and he looked lights out already in game one, fit right into that line. I
0: like him. He reminds right me in. of Malkin, big lefty smooth skater, good on his yep. backhand, rocket shot. I was really I was solid. impressed.
1: That was a great get for the caps, and it shows as they should be, they're all in for this year. And you know, just w- the the hold up from some fans was giving up Verana in the deal for how he helped them to the cup and the potential he has, but just the fit with La Violette. It's just not there, nah. uh, and and it's time to move on. I mean, it, it's, it's just not a fit, and that's okay. I mean, that is totally
0: fine. It happens. And he's didn't, probably going to go on to have good success elsewhere, too. Didn't bother me. Giving up, Verona. And then the last thing before we get into trivia, just wanted to touch on the NBA a little bit. Look, the Western Conference, I mean, we haven't talked NBA in like a month, and Utah and Phoenix were 1-2, and here we are a month later, and they're still 1-2. The Lakers have had injuries. Davis is still out. Then LeBron got hurt. Um, And then the Nuggets have finally started to play like the Nuggets, but now Jamal Murray is out for the season, which is just a really tough blow for Denver. Um, And then the Clippers are starting to get hot. They've won seven in a row. So the Western Conference, yes, Utah and Phoenix are one and two, but at the end of the day, this is still going to go through. Clippers, Lakers, and hopefully we get the matchup that we thought we were going to get last season and then in the east the the big three of philly brooklyn and milwaukee is still staying true but uh how about the hawks four seed they're climbing um boston and miami finally started to figure it out which you you figured they would with all the talent that those two teams had um but uh, yeah, Toronto has been the real disappointment in the East. It looks like they're going to be fighting to get into that playing game. The seven, eight, nine, and 10 seeds will all get in a playing game. But look, the team that uh, I follow, the company we work for, the Wizards, the West Coast Wizards are no joke. If they could play right. all their games at 10 o'clock, they'd be a pretty good team. The problem is now they got to come home and they got to play Eastern Conference teams. So we'll see how they do against that. But he had a six-game road trip, and Russell Westbrook had six triple-doubles in all those games. That's crazy. I, what he's doing is is absurd. Him and Beal are finally starting to click. John Wall was really beloved in this area. I loved him too, but I got to give Tommy Shepard credit because pound for pound, Westbrook's a better player. And it, just like anything, it's going to take time, but I think Russ and Beal are really starting to – feel each other out. And they're beating the best teams. They've swept Utah. They've beaten Phoenix. They've beaten the Lakers. They've beaten the Clippers. They've beaten Brooklyn twice. They're beating the best teams with Beal and Westbrook. So, uh, you know. It it makes it a tough evaluation because they're beating the best teams and Beal
1: and Westbrook are playing the way they're playing, yet they're also 21 and 33. So, like, you just can't reconcile the two. Um, They might get in the play-in game. It's going to be close. They're only now a game back of the Bulls. Uh, The Raptors turned out to be, like we both talked about, one of the best win total under bets. Just all year having to stay, you know, in Tampa, away Mm -hmm. from home, up over the border in Canada. So that has really taken its toll. Um, Really love the surprise teams that we've kind of seen this year. You know, the NBA regular season is probably the least fun part of the NBA we have the off season, which has trades and free agency is always nuts. Yes. Playoffs are great. Of course, the regular season is kind of just ho-hum. Like, and it's totally flip-flop in the NFL. Like the NFL, we're all about the regular season. So much fun. Uh, we, we get up for the draft. We get up for free agency. We obviously have the playoffs, but like the regular season is great. It's valuable. There's only 16, now 17 games. Uh, even the MLB, you know, for the long slog that it is of 162 games, with the playoffs back to the way they are supposed to be, unlike last year, there's value in the regular season because it's such a selective postseason. But the NBA, it's a boring regular season where you have things happening like last night, where on a nationally televised ESPN game, 37 and 17 versus 37 and 17, Nets, Sixers, the Nets bench everybody on the roster except for Kyrie Irving. Um, you have that. And then you have this seven through 10 play in thing where now in a league of 30 teams, 20 of them will play beyond the last date of the regular season. So it's not really, it's taking away from the importance of the regular season. Um, So it's just, that's kind of why we haven't talked about it. We had Chris Miller on. It's just, everybody's kind of in their doldrums of the season. You got Giannis resting every other night. You got Kawhi resting every other night. You got Kyrie and the Nets alternating who's taking off when, except for Harden. Harden's actually hurt now at the hamstring and hope he gets back soon. But you got them figuring out who wants to sit which night. So, so all it's just, it takes away from it. It takes <laughs> sure. away from it. But uh, but within that, it's been nice to see the surprise teams like the Knicks and the Hawks who were going 100% every night taking advantage of their matchup against the Bucks where Giannis didn't play. A- and that makes for a fun postseason storyline because I think back to when the Jets made the AFC title run the first time with Sanchez and Rex Ryan in their first years as a team, they only got in because the Colts sat guys at the end of the season and they played the Colts in the AFC title game. So they almost lost at the hands of the monster they created. There's going to be that storyline pretty frequently in the NBA this year because how many games did maybe the Hawks or the Knicks or even the Hornets who are an eight seed win that they probably shouldn't have won because those teams rested. So that's going to be interesting to see. And then the same thing goes to a lesser extent for the west because the west we have the usual suspects but still um you got teams sliding in there like the grizzlies who have been a really nice story so the nuggets were a really nice story and it just sucked to see jamal murray go down at the torn acl um it bodes well probably for not that this is to be an important thing in the matter but it bodes well probably for Jokic's mvp candidacy because Mm -hmm. that team squarely on his big uh eastern shoulders. european shoulders yes. now so, uh, so it's all Jokic, and to his credit for all these guys resting and stuff he's not missed a single game this season not one he's played every night
0: respect to him um look we're gonna see some big time tanking down the stretch too because cool. in the nba draft i don't know if there has been a more coveted draft to get the top three of yeah the draft. i don't think
1: that there's no special Clear cut, no doubt, or number one. I would say, th- you know, thinking back to the year um, when we had guys like Zion, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Zion Williamson, all those names. There's no guy like that. But in most of those years, you need to get number one because two, three, four—they're not the best consolation prizes. This year, I mean. You got the two Jalens, you got Cade Cunningham, you got Evan Mobley. You get any of those four guys, one through four, and you're sitting pretty good in the next season. So, Well, that's if, the thing. There, there isn't that clear-cut one, but there are four or five genuine superstar-type players. Kuminga, you throw in there as well.
0: I think it's just going to be best fit. Usually, you just take the best player on the board in the NBA draft, especially towards the top. You're like, yeah, I mean, that guy's the best player. Let's just go with him. But – like I've said on record, if the Wizards get the number one pick, I think they should probably look into Evan Mobley. If, but most teams will probably look in and get Suggs or Cunningham to run their team. So it really depends and then, on and then now you picking. Like I
1: said, you, you throw in the, the G League wrinkle now as well, where you got Jalen Green and Jonathan Kuminga there too. So there's so much talent. Uh, but it's going to be really interesting down the stretch because you know do teams care about getting into the play-in or not? Would they – with this, you know, not the Spurs, bad example, because Popovich, we know every night that he could win, he's going to try to go out there and win. But just hypothetically, if their coach were somebody other than Greg Popovich, did the Spurs care at 26 and 27 at the moment about holding on to the 10 seed? And, you know, maybe they beat the Mavericks only to go ahead and lose to whoever they play in the first round, or would they rather slide down a few games? and enter the lottery as one of those bottom 10 teams you know i that's that's going to be curious to see like i i mean i genuinely don't know if teams care about getting the nine or the 10 i mean i don't i don't know we're going to find out but i i'd say teams probably would rather lose down the stretch and not even have to deal with it
0: if i'm sam presti and oklahoma city gets the number one pick i'm trading those other 25 picks that i have accumulated and i'm getting in the top three again to see if I can get two of those three guys That not would be, a bad call. That'd be something if you're Oklahoma City. Um, all right, Joe, it is trivia time, episode 45. You and I are tied up at 16. I didn't give you a golf question last week, um, but with Sam's on this week, I figured I would give you a okay. golf question this time around. So your question is that of the top 15 players right now, according to the world golf rankings, six of them have not won a major. So if you can give me five of the six players that have not won a major in the top 15, you got it.
1: Top 15, not won a major. Correct. Ooh, that's tough. Um, hmm. All right. I'm trying to think first about. Oh man, um, God! After the Masters, like I don't even know what the top 15 looks like because I don't know how that how that shook things up with with the way we saw certain guys finish. Um, top 15. I Hovland's probably right around 15, and he hasn't won. Hovland is 15.
0: Yes. Okay. All
1: right. So that's what I'm saying. Like I don't know what the I haven't looked at the rankings after the Masters. Um, shoot. Uh, you got 45 Penal's seconds. probably up. in the back half of the top 10. now's Penal. 12, yeah. All right. That's two. Um, Rory's in there. He's obviously one. Brooks is in there. He's obviously one. Um... Oh, Rom's got to be in there. Rom's no, number the question three that we had, and yep. Shawfley for that matter.
0: Shawfley's in there. He is number
1: five. That's me using my noggin with the question that we uh, we were talking about with uh, with Steve. Who would get it first? All right, that's four. <laughs> um, you got
0: fifteen seconds left. You just need one oh, more. Oh, I guy. know. Cant,
1: Cantlay's in there. Cantlay.
0: That is correct. He screwed me. He screwed me in a Masters pool this week. You got it. And then you got five seconds left. You know the other guy. I got no shot at the other guy. The other guy's terrible. I got Hatton, to this who's No, one.
1: I would not have gotten to yeah. Terrell Hatton.
0: I mean, uh, all those guys, I barely got to. I was not. And I didn't think you'd get Hatton, so I thought the other five would be. And you got it so well done. Yeah. So Joe's up to seventeen. All right. Yeah, I, I, that's the thing. Like, and again, you know,
1: it's just a matter of when you look at the rankings, when you don't. I that was what I thought was going to trip me up. Like, I didn't know how. I knew he was around there, and it was worth wasting a strike on. Uh, I mean who else would I have said i would have said maybe um song j m is he near the top fifteen
0: JM, j m I believe he's like yeah low twenties maybe okay, around so there. yeah that's the thing all right good well I, now i got to
1: know too whenever it's it's around a major to go ahead and look at the rankings to make sure I know who's where after some of these in between ones so, yep that's the thing <laughs> but all right, well, by the skin of my teeth and thankfully because i don't know if you intended to do this to give me a shot at it or if it was a flub on your part but i got too gifted for me from the uh from the sands question thinking back to the to the Shawley rom thing so thank you for that you actually spotted me too guys. you're welcome <laughs> um all right so your question has to do with the no hitter that we saw uh last night and the two that we've seen in the last week so since 2010 perfect games included perfect games included since 2010 there have been one, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys who have thrown multiple no hitters. I want you to give me five of them. Since twenty ten. Seven guys, multiple no hitters. I want five of them.
0: That many?
1: Shocked me. All right. Verlander and Scherzer have to be two. Verlander has two of them. Actually he has a third going back to oh seven, and Scherzer is correct as well.
0: Uh
1: so three wow. more. Wow
0: multiple pitchers with no hitters that's insane
1: i only got five of the seven which is why i give you asking. the ground doesn't
0: have any kershaw i think just has the one um let's see felix hernandez is i'll go king felix strike only one mm. the mariners were a part of a couple of Right. Team
1: no-hitters. Yeah, Iwakuma, I think,
0: yeah. Uh, Verlander, Garrett Cole, I don't think got any. Man, I can't believe there are seven. <laughs> Let's see. Um, a minute gone, 30 seconds to go. Bieber, Bauer, no. Lester, no. Arrieta, no. Sabathia, no. I'll give you a hint.
1: Out, so Verlander is one of the recent ones. After that, there's one more in 2019. The rest of them are all 2015 or before. If you think in eras then.
0: Mm. I'll go uh, Chris Sale.
1: No, expect two. 15 seconds.
0: Kluber, I don't, Sabathia? Nah. This so, is a tough one.
1: I thought, the ones I thought you'd get, two of them you got. I thought you'd get Tim Lincecum because he was lights out and he had two and pretty rapid. He was 2010. Success. He was, tw- yeah, he was 2013 and 2014 that he got his two. So I thought you would have gotten Lincecum. Thought he was way earlier. And, and I thought you would have gotten Jake Arrieta who just recently had his Right. He had it in 2015 and 2016.
0: I, Arietta, Arrieta, I said out loud, but I, I didn't think he had done two. Yeah, yeah. So
1: I thought, I thought you'd get those four. Uh, Roy Halliday is a name that I thought you would have gotten. But his came right at the beginning, both in 2010. He was flooring in my head. I wasn't sure if you would get him because of the year. Uh, And then the other two are Homer Bailey. He actually had back-to-back league no-hitters. Not back-to-back starts, but he threw the two in succession, most recent no-hitters in the league at the end of 2012 in September and then the first no-hitter of the following year in July. And then Mike Fires, Mike Fires of now squealing on the Astros fame. (laughs) Uh, threw a no hitter in August of 15 and in May of 19.
0: Wow. I was stunned when I saw there were seven. That's a great question. Great that was, question. Yeah. Uh, that was, that's maybe the best one you give me. I cannot <laughs> believe there are that many people. It rings a bell. And again, like I knew all those names you said, I've known that they've thrown one. But two is what gets me. That they I, I knew twice. Arietta because that
1: was the year leading up to, and then the year that the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. Uh, I knew Scherzer, obviously. I knew Verlander, obviously. I recalled Halliday and I recalled Lincecum for for that stretch. I don't think I would have ever pulled Fires. If you gave me long enough, if you gave me long enough. I might have pulled Homer Bailey. I wouldn't have done it in a minute 30. But if you gave me, so, like
0: who was the seventh guy? It was Arietta Fires, Holiday Linsicum, Scherzer, Verlander and Homer Bailey. Oh, Bailey.
1: Bailey, Arietta Fires,
0: right. Got you. Wow. So
1: if you would have given me long enough, I might have gotten Bailey just because he... Th- I remember he threw his during that stretch, we were just a bunch of random guys. So his were in 12 and 13. If you remember back in 2012, that's when we also had, like, Dallas Braden's perfect game, and we had, like, Phil Umber's game. Like, I remember there was a stretch of just random three and four starters throwing no hitters in perfect games. So I might have pulled Homer Bailey in the long run, but not in a minute 30. So I thought you would have gotten five. But, hey, good question nonetheless. I don't know how I pulled five on yours. Uh, I'll take that as a lucky victory for the day. Well uh, done. Very, was very Holland, great was question. top 15
0: before the Masters? I think he was right on the number, yeah. I think he stayed at 15. Interesting. So, right. Zalatoris and Matsuyama obviously made the biggest leaps. Hideki now is in the top 15. I think he's 14. Mm. So, well done, Joe. All right. It was great having Steve Sands back on, man. That guy's awesome. Great talking golf with him. Uh, we got NFL draft coming up. We'll talk more about that next week. And uh... that's
1: that's another one of those things like I'm saying, like, I feel like it was just a month ago that I was sitting in my living room watching all these other NFL players in their living rooms. For the virtual draft and now it's a draft again i like
0: that more honestly great, that i
1: wish great. they would keep that oh my god like I the moment that. like the, the the everlasting image i have of that draft is cd lamb like taking his phone oh, back to, like, or Vrabel's kid taking a
0: poop in the room next door or <laughs> something great. you can't I, write that stuff like it was it was incredible i wish they kept that part of it the same have all the players go to cleveland have their moment absolutely but, like, oh, my God, having the coaches in their homes, thought that was awesome. Love yeah, and and the, the player aspect of it still kind of could happen.
1: Like, Trevor Lawrence isn't going to the draft. So, I mean, these guys, it's up to them, and, and a lot of them want to spend it with their families anyway. Right. But forcing everybody to be home made it really interesting. Because, so, like, now we're going to have, obviously, a lot lesser of a number. and But, the, I mean, Adam Gase – I would never want to say that name ever. And I hate when I have to bring that name up. It's just PTSD for me. But Adam Gase's kid between their first pick of the second round and their next pick. Oh, sorry. When they were going to be on the clock, but then traded the pick back to the later half of the second round to take Denzel Mims. When they first showed Adam Gase, his son was starting a Rubik's Cube. When they got to the Jets pick his six-year-old son had finished the Rubik's Cube. Oh, like, awesome. that was
0: incredible. <laughs> like, those
1: are things that I will never forget from last year. That's draft. awesome. That's and I would love awesome. to see Goodell going from the, from the the little podium to just sitting back on his, like, big chair at
0: the end. And then we his... get to see just Clint, Cliff Kingsbury living in a house that you would expect <laughs> Cliff Kingsbury to live in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that really was fantastic. <laughs> um, all right, so next week we'll do episode 46. Thanks again to Sands. We'll see you next week.